right, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you and gather with our church family. And uh, what a Sunday. Um, we are practicing all of the ordinances this morning, which is great. Um, if you're new to church or don't know what the word ordinance is, uh, you're in good company. Um, Jesus, before he left the earth, um, essentially gave the church, gave the believers, um, these two signs um, to continue to practice and obey um, as in, as to, to represent and show the world that they're in a covenant relationship with him. And the two are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, baptism being um, this symbolic act to show that you have been buried with Christ and raised with Christ and um, the sin in you has been buried and has been punished, it's been put on Jesus Christ and the new life and righteousness that you have in Christ um, as you walk in newness of life, as the scripture says. Um, so that's one. And then the second is um, Jesus commanded his church, in fact, uh, the night before he was betrayed, um, told his church, told his disciples and his followers um, thereafter that uh, they were to follow in um, this ordinance of the Lord's Supper, that we would remember and regularly partake of his body broken and his blood shed. And there's nothing um, you know, super spiritual about uh, the cracker and the juice, um, but it's the symbol um, of us being partakers of tasting of his body broken and his bloodshed and experiencing the new life that we have in Christ. And he said, as often as you do this. Um, so Jesus um, implied that there's some frequency to this. So we're glad to, to be able to do both of those this morning, to practice um, the signs of the covenant, um, that we, you and I, are in covenant relationship with the Lord. Uh, but let me pray, and then uh, we'll jump into uh, Psalm 22. If you want to turn to Psalm 22 this morning, that's where we'll spend a couple minutes of our time as we prepare our hearts to take communion um, one more thing as you turn there, um, if you are a man in the room, uh, it's men's lunch season. We're back. Um, August 11th, it's a Thursday during the lunch hour, 11.45 to 12.45. We'll be right in the lobby, and uh, Ronnie Stevens will be joining us uh, to teach us in the Word. It's a great way to uh, use your lunch hour to uh, hear from the Lord and His Word and connect with other men in the community. So you can sign up at Next Steps. Um, there's also some sign-ups online if you want to... Uh, Find those on our social media or website or any of those things. So um, Psalm 22, let's do this. Let me pray, and then uh, we will jump in to this psalm. Uh, Lord, be with us as we gather around your word. Um, Father, I thank you um, that this, um, God, this time is not dependent on me. It's not dependent on uh, my ability to change a heart or anything like that. God, I confess before you that apart from you, I can't do anything, that I don't have the power to change a heart um, to soften a heart, um, God, to open people's eyes, um, to allow deaf ears to hear, but God, you do. Um, your word says in Psalm 19 that the law of the Lord, your, your word is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, and it makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. God, the, the commandment of the Lord is clean, enlightening the eyes. Um, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And God, more to be desired is your word than gold, even much fine gold and sweeter are they than drippings of the honeycomb. And by them, your servant is warned. So Father, be with us. Enlighten our eyes, rejoice our heart, um, make us wise. Um, God, do all of those things that I can. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. All right. We're going to dive into Psalm 22, and um, let me just kind of tell you where we are. We are wrapping up this series in the Psalms. Uh, we're going to be starting a series next week on the parables in the New Testament. We're going to be, look, be looking at some of Jesus' parables. 
Uh, some of them are easy to understand. Some of them, Scripture even gives us uh, the meaning in Jesus' own words. Uh, sometimes the disciples would pull them aside and say, hey, what did that mean? Uh, which there's grace for you. If you're in church and you're like, man, sometimes I get it, sometimes I don't. Even Jesus' disciples would hear teaching from him and be like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. And then they would get alone with him and be like, hey, what did that mean? And uh, so if you're uh, feeling that this morning, you're in good company. Uh, there's grace for you as well. But uh, we're going to walk through the parables uh, this fall, and we're ending the Psalms. So I figured as we take communion, as we look at the Psalms, what better Psalm for us to look at than Psalm 22? And if you're unfamiliar with Psalm 22, uh, you will be very familiar with it before we wrap up this morning. But uh, I want to remind us that the Psalms are essentially the Hebrew songbook um, that the ancient Jews would write these songs, but then they would sing these songs, they would quote these songs, they would literally sing them with other believers. Um, Jesus used these songs often as his own devotional material. Jesus quoted the Psalms all of the time. And uh, I say that they're songs because you'll see, especially in Psalm 22, that they use very dynamic language, very poetic language. Um, and that's important as we look at Psalm 22 today. Um, but David wrote this Psalm 1,000 years before Jesus would walk the earth. A thousand years before Jesus, David is writing these words. And that's important because um, when we think about Jesus' death, his burial, uh, the crucifixion in particular, um, Jesus chooses a psalm on the cross to quote. And the psalm that he quotes on the cross is Psalm 22. And I would even argue that Jesus quotes the first line of the psalm that's very clear, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then... Um, Many theologians, uh, James Montgomery Boyce is one, and many others would even argue that Jesus quoted the last line of the psalm, where on the cross he says, it is finished. Um, if you look at the end of Psalm 22, it says, he has done it. Um, but in Hebrew, there's no object to that verb um, in the Hebrew language. Um, so it could very well mean, instead of the third person uh, in speaking is he, she, or it. So instead of it is finished, or he is, it could, instead of he has done it, it could very well be it is done, or it is finished. And uh, many theologians argue, and here's why this is important, because if you are an ancient Israelite, if you wanted to quote a psalm to someone, what you would do, you wouldn't quote all 31 verses. You would quote the first line of the psalm and the last line of the psalm. And Jesus makes seven statements on the cross, and two of the seven are the first line of Psalm 22 and the last line of Psalm 22. Essentially, Jesus is saying, look at Psalm 22, because it's about me. And uh, what's crazy about this is a thousand years before Jesus would walk the earth, David didn't know the name Jesus. He knew, uh, according to 2 Samuel 7, that um, God promised David that he would have a descendant who would be on the throne, but he didn't know anybody's name. He didn't know about crucifixion. 800 to 900 years later, the Persians would invent the, this torture tool of crucifixion and the Romans would later adopt it. But David didn't know that that exists he didn't know the name Jesus exists. He didn't know that Jesus would be crucified. And we can take comfort. And if you've ever questioned um, the inerrancy of Scripture, um, read Psalm 22, penned a thousand years before Jesus would be crucified, and nails it to a T. And we believe here at High Point that all Scripture, according to 2 Timothy 3, is God-breathed, it's inspired by God, that God wrote this word. He used human authors to do it, but as Peter says in his letter, that these writers were carried along by the Holy Spirit and wrote exactly what God intended for them to write. And a thousand years before Jesus would show up and be crucified, David describes it, writing about his own experience, 
but would describe it in such poetic language that what David describes about himself poetically, Jesus would later experience, the greater David would experience it literally, down to the T. So let's look at it together, and uh, we will start in verse one. So if you're there, Psalm 22, there's 30-something verses, so we're just gonna, and I've got 30 minutes, so we're gonna just go right through it, uh, skip our way through it. So look at verse one with me. He says this, this is David writing, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why, have you so far for, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. And here's what's fascinating about this. We don't know what experience in David's life um, that prompted this psalm, but David went through some experience where he was beaten, where he felt like the Lord um, had forsaken him, where he's got enemies around him that are cursing him and mocking him and shaming him and all the things. Um, but David's writing about his own personal experience and he feels like God has forsaken him, that he's far from saving him, that he's groaning, that he's crying by day and he's not getting an answer and by night, but I find no rest. And here's what's fascinating about this is <clears throat> David clearly had a intimate relationship with the Lord. He's described as being a man after God's own heart. Um, he was anointed by the Lord to be king, all of these things. He walked with the Lord. Um, he led Israel in fear of the Lord and all of those things. And he says, my God, my God. So this isn't like someone who doesn't know the Lord and is going, okay, God, where are you? Why? No, this is like, a. This is, he's in shock. Like, God, where are you? My God. And in the Hebrew language, um, if you wanted to emphasize something, you would just say it twice. So if something was bad, you would just say it's bad. If something was real bad, you would say it's bad, bad. And that's how they would write in the Hebrew language. So the fact that, that David here is saying, my God, my God, this is, this is intimate. This is, he's emphasizing, you're my God, and I don't feel you. I don't feel like you're around. And some of you, you might have walked in here in this room this morning, and this is the season that you find yourself in. I don't feel like God's around. I don't feel like he's near. I know him, I believe in him, but he feels distant to me. And we often do that based on our circumstances, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But David is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this is someone who knows the Lord, and he's shocked. But here's what's so fascinating about this statement. Whether you would say this morning, you would admit, like, hey, circumstantially, I feel like I'm in that season where it just doesn't feel like God is there. All of us can relate to this line of the psalm, and here's why. Because apart from Christ, in our sin, this is the reality that we all find ourselves in. This is life post the Garden of Eden. After Genesis 3, when sin enters the world, all of humanity cries out, God, why have you forsaken us? Why? Because of our sin. David knows he's a sinner. He's reaping the consequences of his sin. And he goes, okay, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But this reality is true for all of us. Now, if you're in Christ, Romans 8 and many other places in Scripture would tell us there's nothing that can separate you from God's love. Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. All of those things. So I'm not communicating the idea that our sin, if you're in Christ, can cause God to leave you. That's not a thing. I want to be clear about that. But our sin does affect our intimacy with the Lord. That you can have some relational and intimate separation from the Lord as you sin. If you regularly walk in sin, if you're complacent with sin, if you entertain sin on a regular basis, it will affect your intimacy with the Lord. So for the believer, as we sin, the consequences of that affects our intimacy with the Lord. For the unbeliever, our sin separates us from the Lord. 
We know because God is holy and just and righteous and perfectly beautiful and glorious in all of his majesty and splendor that God does not dwell with sin. He cannot sin. He does not entertain sin. That God deals justly with sin. And we want a God who will deal justly with sin. We want a judge who punishes evil. Judges who don't punish evil, we refer to them as bad judges, right? The thing we love about God is that he hates sin. He deals with sin. And humanity in our sin separates us from the Lord. Isaiah 59 verse two says, um, your iniquities, your sin has separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. That our sin separates us from the Lord. And here's what I wanna remind us of. If you're in the season, whether it's circumstantially where you feel like God is just isn't present or isn't around, or maybe spiritually you just feel like you're in a dry season, look at what David does. And we need to follow in his example here. If you're in a season where you feel like God is gone, watch what David does. Verse three, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. David does two things right here, and he'll do a couple more in a, couple, in a, in a few verses down. But he does two things. If you're in a season right now where you feel like God is just not near, that he's not present in your life, do what David does. And the first thing he does is he reminds himself that God is holy. If you feel like God isn't near, if you feel like God is taking a step back, remind yourself, no, God, you're holy. God, you are righteous. You can do whatever you please. Scripture says the Lord is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. That God is perfectly holy and just and right to give us good things and to take things away from us. Job confesses this. Lord, you give and you take away, but blessed be your name. That God doesn't owe us a thing. We're not entitled to things from the Lord. And David realizes, no, God, you're holy and you're right and you're just to do whatever you please. And if you have me here in this season, then I still owe you my life. You've given me everything. You've given the breath. You've sustained my life. You're holding the world together. God, you are holy and right and just to do whatever you please. But then he doesn't stop there. He says, and you've been faithful. He looks back to his ancestors. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. So if you're in a season, a dry season, a season where you feel like the Lord isn't around, remind yourself that no, 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 God is holy and he's just, and he's right to do whatever he wants, and he's been faithful to me. God is a faithful God. He's been faithful generations before me, and he will be faithful generations after me. And here's what happens, and here's why this is so important, because oftentimes I mentioned that we equate God's love to us with our present circumstances, and I don't wanna discount that. Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount that the Lord is our heavenly Father, and he loves to give good gifts to his children. He loves to give you good circumstances, but you can't always equate your current circumstances with God's love for you. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, and it was his plan. He wanted to do that, and it was ultimately good for Jesus so he could be our substitute. He could be tempted like us in every way, as the writer of Hebrews would say. So just because you're in a storm, it doesn't mean um, that God is upset with you. It doesn't mean that God is mad at you, often God will lead us into those situations. And here's where we go wrong when we equate my good circumstances with God's love for me. Oftentimes, um, we get it so backwards. And what we do is we judge God's holiness based on our goodness. 
and how good our lives are right now. And if, hey, things are going well, you're right. God is holy. He is just. He is perfect in all his ways, right? I've got my money. I've got my job. I've got all my family. We're all healthy. But then when things start to crumble, we go, ah, God, I don't know how holy you are, right? I would do things a little differently, or we start to question our, you know, the last six months of our lives, like, did it, where did I go wrong? Did I mess up? Did I do some things? And we got it backwards. Instead of, and this is what David does, instead of judging God's holiness based on our goodness, what does he do? He judges his own goodness based on God's holiness. And we've got to get those right. Instead of deciding if we think God is good or if God is kind based on how our lives are going, no, we need to evaluate our lives based on his holiness. And David putting God on his rightful place on the throne and remembering how holy and how majestic and how wonderful he is, he says, you know what, God, you're holy and you're just and you're right to have me here. And then if you look, I love this next verse in verse six, he says, but I'm a worm and not a man, right? When we define reality rightly, when we have good theological bearings on our world and our circumstances and we realize God's holy, he's just, he's perfect, we are not holy, we are undeserving. We are not perfect. We aren't deserving of anything from the Lord. Our response is, I'm a worm and not a man. And what's also fascinating about this idea of equating God's love with our circumstances is it's the complete opposite of the gospel. It's anti-gospel. If you think God's love for you is based on your behavior, if your circumstances show how much God loves you, it's work, it's religion. It's God, let me scratch your back so that you'll scratch mine. If when bad circumstances happen in your life, you respond with, man, you know, I guess I haven't been reading my Bible lately or like, did I do something to mess God, like make him mad? That's workspace. That's based on your performance. That's anti-gospel. And then we go, oh, I guess, you know, I need to read this a couple times so that God will, you know, help me find good parking spots and like, you know, send some blessing. no. That's working for God's approval and for God's love. It's anti-gospel. And let me just tell you, if you adopt that mindset, you will fall in one of two camps. You will be in extreme arrogance because you'll come up with your list and you'll keep your list and you'll think you're better than everybody else because you're better at list keeping and God must love you because of how great you are. Meanwhile, you'll be deceiving yourself because there's nothing you could ever do to be good enough for God's love or... If it's up to you, you'll be insanely arrogant or you will be in total despair because you'll look reality in the face and you'll realize that you could never be good enough for God's love. And if every day it's up to you to wake up and to be good enough and think good enough thoughts and be kind enough and selfless enough and wonderful enough and praiseworthy enough, you will either fall into despair or you will fall into extreme arrogance and self-deception. And the beauty of the gospel is it's not up to your behavior. It's not based on your performance or your works. And when we have bad circumstances in our lives, we should not think, okay, this is because of my performance. No, the appropriate response is, God, you're holy and you're just and you're faithful and you can bring me wherever you wanna bring me. Do what you may. Do what you must. And it's okay to pray for God to relieve burdens and circumstances and all those things. Jesus calls us constantly to pray and to give those burdens to him. But our response is, you're holy and you're just and you're faithful and here's my burdens and I trust you with them. And you see David do that in this song. He says, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. 
They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And then he starts to quote his enemies. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So you see David's enemies who have surrounded him and are beating him, going, hey, look at here. It's the man after God's own heart. Surely his God will save him, right? This is the one whom the Lord has chosen to be king and all those things. Surely his God will save him. And they start to mock his relationship with the Lord. They start to mock him. And this is where we start to see, as if we didn't see it in the first verse, we start to see the greater David one day who would come to this earth and he would be surrounded and he would be beaten and he would be mocked. And they would put a sign over his head that says, Hail, King of the Jews. And they would scorn him and yell at him and mock him on the cross and say, hey, if you truly are the Son of God, come down from there. If you truly are the chosen one, the Messiah, surely your God will help you. And they mock him. And then David moves on. He says in verse nine, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. So another thing that David does that we have to follow in his example, he reminds himself of God's holiness, he reminds himself of God's faithfulness, and then he looks back personally and reminds himself of God's sovereign hand all over his life. God, you've been sovereign over my birth, you've been gotten me to this point. God, who am I to think that the reason I'm here today and breathing and healthy and all of those things is, is not because of you? You've sustained my life. You've ruled over my life. God, you've been sovereign over every traffic jam and every accident that I would have had and all of those things, every red light, every step, like all the things, right? God, you've been sovereign over my birth. Your sovereign hand has been all over my life. You were there when I fought Goliath. You were there when Saul was trying to kill me. God, you've led me and moved me and taken care of me. God, you take care of your own. You're holy. You can do whatever you please. You've been faithful. And God, I've seen your sovereignty all over my life. We should respond that way as well as we navigate the different circumstances of this life. And then a thousand years later, we're gonna keep going from David to Jesus back and forth over the psalm. It's not one of those messages where I kind of pull the rug out at the end and say, hey, it's Jesus. Like, Jesus is all over this one. Because a thousand years later, God would be sovereign over another birth and another child. And the Holy Spirit would conceive a baby in Mary. And he would be sovereign over the birth. He would be sovereign to put it on the heart of um, the governor at the time to call for a census to move Jesus from Nazareth to Bethlehem to fulfill tons of Old Testament prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. He would be sovereign to call the shepherds and the angels to go and see the birth. He would be sovereign over the the inn being full so that Jesus would be born in a manger. He would be sovereign over um, King Herod putting this decree out to kill all of the the newborn babies of Israel and be sovereign to show um, Jesus that he needs to, and Mary and Joseph, that they need to flee to Egypt. That a thousand years later, you see God's sovereign hand over another David's birth. And it would be, Jesus Christ. He says, you took me from the womb. You made me trust you. Your hand's been all over my life. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's no one to help. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. 
They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So many, 1,000 years before Jesus would even show up, David's writing this by the Holy Spirit, experiencing this in some way, but writing very poetically that Jesus will one day experience literally, that one day Jesus would be at the cross and he would be surrounded by many bulls and lions and dogs. And Jesus would be poured out like water. The Gospel of John tells us that they pierced Jesus' side and blood and water ran out, flowed out of him a thousand years later at the cross for you and me. They opened wide their mouths at me, right? They, they cursed Jesus on the cross and poured out like water. My heart is like wax. My strength is dried up and my tongue sticks to my jaws. Gospel of John tells us that Jesus on the cross said, I thirst, that his mouth was dry. And he would cry out, I thirst, and they would put some wine on a spear and sponge and stick it up to him and all of those things. But you see the greater David one day on the cross for you and me. Mouth dry, strength dried up, dogs encompass me, that he would be laid in the dust in the tomb. Company of evildoers encircles me. And then David says this in verse 16. They have pierced my hands and my feet. You cannot make this up. You can't. If you are ever curious about the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, look no further than Psalm 22. A thousand years before Jesus, and David's writing, they pierced my hands and my feet. And Jesus on the cross would say, Psalm 22, Psalm 22. I'm fulfilling Psalm 22 in my life and in my death. And then verse 17, I count all my bones. It was also prophesied in the Old Testament that when Jesus would be crucified, that they would not break any of his bones. And that's important because Roman crucifixion and Persian crucifixion, the way it would work, a lot of people don't realize this. Um, we actually did a video about this a couple of Good Fridays ago. Um, but crucifixion, the cross, was actually a suffocation tool. I mean, it was much more than that. But the way that people would die by crucifixion was they would suffocate. And there's tons of torture involved. In fact, Jesus, they took it you know, multiple steps further by whipping him and ripping out his beard and putting a crown of thorns on his head to mock him for being or claiming to be king of the Jews. But they nail his hands and his feet to this cross. And the way it would work is all your bones would get disjointed because gravity would set in and you would just hang there. And the way for you to get a breath was you would have to literally leverage the nails in your body to push up to take a breath and then come down for hours and hours and hours. So what the Romans and the Persians would do was, especially um, when it was um, Jewish, uh, someone who was Jewish being crucified and Sabbath was coming, was they would often speed the process up by breaking the people's legs. So they would come by to the two thieves on the cross and they would break their legs so that they couldn't push up anymore to take a breath. And they would die from suffocation. And scripture says when they got to Jesus, they knew he was already gone and they did not break a single bone in his body. And you see David a thousand years before this saying, I've, I've got all my bones. They're all there. None of them broken. 
I can count them all. As poured out as he is, as beaten as he is, as you know, opened up as he is, hearts melted, strength gone, all my bones are there. Amazing. And then verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus was stripped, and the Roman soldiers and others cast lots for his clothes. And then this is where we start to see the turn. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword and my precious life from the power of the dog. Still crying out to the Lord. Verse 21, save me from the mouth of the lion. And then the end of verse 21, he says, you've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen, exclamation mark. And this is written this way. It seems very sudden, right? I'm dying. I'm being poured out. I'm being beaten. You know, I can feel my bones are all there, but I'm hurting. All those kind of things. They're surrounding me. They're mocking me. You save me, right? It seems so sudden because it's written in a song form. That's why. Most songs, they just move into the bridge or turn right into the turn of the song. But it didn't happen that way physically for David or for Jesus, but I want you to see that it's written that way because it's written in the form of a song. But you've got this moment where here's the turn of the song. All of this is happening. David's crying out. He's trusting in the Lord all throughout the psalm. And in the end of verse 21, you have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. You've rescued me. Notice his circumstances didn't instantly change. What changed is that David no longer feels forsaken, and I will argue that at some point on the cross, Jesus gets a little bit of a rescue, and we'll see that in just a minute. But he says, you've rescued me, and this is the turn of the psalm. And um, if you're familiar with the Greek language, or if you've been to a fraternity or sorority function before, um, this psalm is written in the form of a chiasm or a chiasm. I don't know how you pronounce the Greek word. Well, I mean, I, I prefer the pronunciation of key, Um, the X in Greek. Um, Some people refer to it as chi, like if you were a sigma chi or a chi omega or whatnot. Uh, Most people don't say sigma chi, but uh, I was taught chi. And anyways, the psalm is written and it's called a chiasm because it's almost written in the shape of an X. And what I mean by that is the psalm starts and converges in this one central point and then the beginning of the psalm and the end of the psalm are the same. Does that make sense? So if you look at an X, there's this one central point where everything kind of turns, but then the beginning of the psalm and the end of the psalm are kind of in the same pattern. You'll see a lot of similarities between the beginning and the end. And the central point of this whole thing is the turn right here. Lord, you've rescued me. And I'll show you some of those similarities as we go through it. But he says, you've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So David experiences this rescue. And then look at what he does. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. You offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him and all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. So if you think about before kind of the turn and after the turn, where does the Psalm start? It starts with David alone, crying out, no answer. And where does it end? With David, when it also starts with David surrounded by his enemies. 
No answer, crying out to the Lord. Where does it end after the turn? David surrounded by the company of the righteous and crying out to the Lord, and he does get an answer. You see the difference? You see the similarities? It starts with David thinking about the generations before him of Israelites, and now it, he moves into generations after of Israelites will praise you. And it starts just focusing on Israel, and we'll see in just a second, it ends with not just Israel, but all nations shall praise you. Every tongue, language, tribe, nation will praise you and will bow before you one day. And he says this, <clears throat> verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And if you're a note taker, I would encourage you to circle that section of the psalm because this is our response. After Jesus has gone to the cross and taken all of our sin and our shame and our punishment, look at David's response in verse 25. From, from you comes my praise and my vows I will perform. Our only response to what God has done is I will praise you and I will obey you. That's our response. We don't earn the cross. We can never pay God back for the cross. This isn't a workspace transactional thing. But in light of the cross, in light of the Holy One of God coming down to earth, taking on skin, being mocked, being beaten, being shamed, being ridiculed, being whipped, being nailed to a cross, pouring himself out, taking the full wrath of God that we deserve for our sin, the only appropriate response is you're worthy of my praise and you're worthy of my life. I will praise you and I will obey you to the degree that you truly realize how sinful you are, how holy God is, and that exchange that he would take on our sin, he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that you and I, us sinners, could become the righteousness of God to the degree that we really take that in, to that same degree, praise will overflow in our mouths and obedience will overflow in our lives. The more we remember and recognize the gospel. He became a curse to redeem those who were under the curse, as Galatians says. But he says this in verse, and I, uh, let me jump in verse six real quick. Notice what he says. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. What does he mean there? He means the exact same thing that Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount. That those who will be satisfied, those who will be blessed, will be the poor in spirit, will be the afflicted. David prophesying about generations to come, that hey, those who will be satisfied are the ones who know they're afflicted. Who are the ones that know they're sinners? Jesus came to this earth and said, I didn't come for the healthy. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call the sick. I came to call the sinner. I came to call those who know they need a savior. And David's prophesying and say, hey, you know who's gonna be satisfied? For generation after generation, those who know their affliction, those who know their sin. Jesus and Isaiah, not Jesus, Isaiah, through the inspiration of Jesus, says, come and buy and eat, come and drink, all who have no money. And he says, the only requirement is that you're hungry and you're thirsty, right? You know your affliction, you know your sin, and you hunger after the Lord and you thirst after him. That's your only requirement this morning. 
If you've never experienced the body broken and the bloodshed of Jesus, the good news of the gospel is you don't have to be good enough. You don't have to perform for him. You don't have to obey enough. You have to know your affliction. You have to know your hunger and know your thirst for him and run after him and seek him. And Jesus says, all who seek him shall praise the Lord. Those who are afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Tim Keller, we say it often here, says the only way to truly be worthy of the gospel is to realize you're completely unworthy of it. It's the only thing is to realize your affliction, is to realize that your sin separates you from the Lord and to hunger and thirst after him. Put your faith in him. And then he says this in verse 27. We started with focusing on just David and his cries with no answer. Now we've got David crying out. He's got an answer. He's surrounded by the righteous. He was surrounded by his enemies. We were just focused on Israel. And now in verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before the Lord. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. God will be their king and he will be their God. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy that you and I could be a part of the family of God? That he could receive the Father's blessing by being completely obedient to the Father's will. And because of all of these things, we exalt him. It was so fascinating about this is every other religion, no other religion that you could imagine would kick off this movement with a crucifixion of its leader. No other movement would ever do this. No one would ever think of this. Hey, we're gonna kick off this, the way, this following of Christ, this Christian movement by crucifying our leader. The only way you do that is if your leader can conquer death, right? If you think about cults, if you think about other religions, what do they do? They keep it super ethereal, right? Like hard to pin down, hard to prove. You know, it's like, hey, there's this person who's over there. No one was around, but he conveniently told me all these truths and they're in this book. And, you know, I'm not sure exactly what happens, but you die and we all kind of like become dolphins and we do like, and you keep it hard to pin down, right? You don't take a leader who claims to be God, who walks the streets, who performs miracles, who speaks the words of God, who displays the heart of God and kill him unless he can conquer the grave. If you're gonna start a movement, you don't crucify the leader and bring him back to life because people can come by and disprove that. He didn't die, he didn't die, that was somebody, right? And you've got 500 plus eyewitnesses to the resurrection after Jesus died and rose again. First Corinthians 15, he appeared to the apostles, he appeared to his brother James, he appeared to others and to 500 more at one time. Why? For you and for me. This excruciating pain was meant for invitation. This instrument of death, this torture tool. What's so fascinating about the cross is Jesus, um, scripture tells us that Jesus despised the shame of the cross. That the cross was a shameful thing. It would be like us walking around with electric chairs on our necks and on our necklaces and tattooed on our arms. And the, We wouldn't do that, would we? And that was the state of the cross before Jesus was crucified that it was a torture tool. And what did Jesus do? By taking on death, he destroyed death. And he despised the shame of the cross and he took, through his death, he turned the greatest instrument of death 
into the greatest invitation of life. And now the cross that used to be a symbol of instant death is now a symbol of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Took on the sin, despised the shame. And he ends with this. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. And David is using very poetic language here. What he's saying is all mortal earthly people, they go to dust, they can't keep themselves alive, and every single one is going to bow one day. Every one will bow. Why? Because Jesus made himself nothing. Because he humbled himself, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day, every single knee will bow. Every knee will bow. Sinner and saint will bow. And every sin will be paid for by our righteous judge. And it will either be paid for on the cross through faith in Christ and his substitutionary death, or it will be paid for by the sinner themselves with eternal punishment and experiencing the wrath of God for all eternity. But every sin is gonna be paid for because God is holy and he is right and he is just. And we want a God and a judge who punishes sin. And the invitation and the free gift of the gospel is that you and I, you can have your sin put on Christ and his righteousness put on you by faith, not by a single work you have to do, not by performing for him or being good enough. The gospel is realizing you could never be good enough and that Jesus went to the cross for you. But he says, all the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship before him shall bow. All who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive, verse 30, Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told to the Lord, to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness. And here's where you and I enter the psalm. To a people yet unborn, that he has done it. The psalm begins looking back to God's faithfulness for generations. And it ends looking to the gospel going to all nations and all people for all generations. Even to the people who are not yet born. And what do they say? He's done it. It's finished. What has he done? He's conquered the grave. He's rolled back the curse. He's defeated sin and death. He's despised the shame of the cross. And he has put the descendant of David on the throne of Israel forever. He has done it. It is finished. Doesn't need you to add to it. The gospel is not one big spiritual alley-oop where Jesus paid for most of it and then you gotta be good enough to, to cover the rest? No, it's done. If you put your faith in Christ, your sin is paid for. His righteousness and holiness is given to you. He gives you his Holy Spirit as a deposit and as a seal, guaranteeing this inheritance that you're gonna get one day, which is Christ himself. And he will not despise his own. He will not forsake his own. Romans 8, he will keep you for all of your days. Nothing can separate you from his love. And it's finished. If you have faith in the gospel, you will never be forsaken. You will never be forgotten. Why? Because Jesus was forsaken. That's the beauty of the gospel. He was forsaken by God so that you and I would never have to be forsaken. 
He was nailed to a cross so that you and I would never have to pay for our own sins. He bled out so that our blood would not have to be shed for our sins. And he rose so that you and I, one day, by faith in him, will rise as well. That the believer will never, ever have to experience death. Never. He was poured out like water. His mouth was dry. His hands were pierced. His body and his bones weren't broken. All for you and for me. What's so fascinating about as you read Psalm 22, and I would encourage you later this evening as we wrap up to just glance at it, to read through it again. Think about the holiness of God. Think about the unworthiness of ourselves. It's a beautiful psalm. And I think it's the most appropriate psalm as we think about Jesus's body broken and his blood shed for us. And I mentioned there's a little bit of a turn at the end and I wanna bring that up just so I can kind of close that loop and not leave you hanging there. Um, The one time in all of the Bible where Jesus refers to the Father as God is right here on the cross. Every, every time Jesus speaks to the Father, he calls him Father. I and the Father are one. He says that in John. He prays to the Father. He gives us the Lord's Prayer and says, our Father who are in heaven. Like He's always talking and referring to God as the Father, except for the one time he doesn't. He says, my God, and it's on the cross. When he's taken on our sin and our shame and the Father had turned his face away from him. What's so interesting, I never caught this, is Jesus, before he breathes his last breath, gets to call his father, Father, one more time. And it's after the work was finished. Before he breathes his last breath, he says, Father, once again, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathes his last, and his spirit goes into heaven to be with the Lord. And I love that that Jesus had finished the work, he had paid for our sin, the Father had turned his face, he had poured out his wrath on Christ, and once it was finished, I can't imagine the joy where Jesus said, Father, here's my spirit, coming to be with you. And by faith in Christ, you and I, if you put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, John tells us in John chapter 10 that you and I, we will never taste death. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. At the moment we breathe our last, our spirit goes to be with the Lord. Why? Because of what he's done on the cross. So we're gonna respond this morning. The only way we should is Jesus told us the night before he was betrayed that as often as we got together with believers and we took communion together, that we would remember and celebrate that his body was broken and his blood was shed for us. And like I said, there's nothing special about the cracker and the juice, um, but it is a symbol as we reflect and we remember what Jesus has done, that it was our body that should have been broken. And it was our blood that should have been shed. We say this all the time around here. We do not want God to be fair with us. We love the phrase, that's not fair. But we do not want God to be fair. We don't. Because we are not deserving of faith and holiness and righteousness. We haven't earned that in our own works, despite what we think. We could never do it. We don't want God to be fair. And the good news of the gospel is God was not fair with his own son. That Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven, took on human flesh. He looked down on a humanity that could never save themselves. So God himself put on skin, met his own standard, and then died for all the ways that you and I failed to meet it. And by his body broken and his blood shed, you and I get to partake and have the righteousness that he's earned 
the joy that he's earned, the peace with God that he's earned, and the spiritual rest that he's earned. We don't have to strive anymore to please God. We are, God is pleased with us, not based on our works, but based on his. So we're gonna respond by taking communion, and here's how this is gonna work. We're gonna have some elders down front, and uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we need to make sure that when we take communion, we take it in a worthy manner. And what that means is that we take some time and examine ourselves and reflect. Um, So we're gonna give you a moment. The band's gonna lead us in some beautiful songs and uh, feel free to worship when you'd like to. Um, But before you come down and grab the elements, take some time and just pray. You can pray as a family. You can pray as an individual. You can pray with some of your friends, however you'd like to do it. But Paul calls us in 1 Corinthians 11 to examine ourselves and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal if there's any sin that you've just become complacent with, that you've become okay with, that you've been justifying, if there's any sins that you're not aware of, we're sinful enough where I promise you the Holy Spirit will give you some that we're aware of, and lay those again before the Lord and receive his mercy and his grace. And then after you take some time and reflect um, and examine yourself, come down front, and what you're gonna do is grab the elements and take them back to your seat, And then I would encourage you, especially dads, husbands in the room, um, lead your family through this time. And I'll give you the cheat sheet. It's as simple as just getting together with your family and praying and thanking Jesus for his body broken and his blood shed on your behalf. It's as simple as that. You can do that as a friend group. You can do that as a family. Moms, if you're in here, you can do that as well. Um, But you'll partake of the elements at your seat and then you can respond and worship. And one last thing, um, if you're not a believer, Um, I say this with lots of care and respect. Um, Myself, but more importantly than me, Scripture and Paul uh, would encourage you to not partake of the Lord's Supper. And you won't get a single look from us. Nobody's looking around to see who came and got one and who didn't. Um, But Paul actually will go on to say in 1 Corinthians that if we take this in an unworthy manner, that we actually bring judgment on ourselves as we partake of the signs of being in a covenant relationship with the Lord when we're actually not in one by faith. Um, So in fact, I'll have more respect for you. If you're like, hey, I just don't know yet. I'm still figuring out the gospel. I'm still figuring out this whole thing or I don't have a relationship with the Lord. Um, We would encourage you to not partake during this moment, but to consider what Christ has done, to continue to read through Psalm 22, to worship with us. Um, But I've said enough. Let me pray, take time to reflect and then come get the elements when you're ready as the band leads us. Lord, Father, we're grateful that we don't deserve a seat at the table We don't deserve your righteousness. We don't deserve your holiness. We don't deserve your peace. But God, we can freely receive it, not based on our merit or our goodness, but based on yours. God, that you didn't save us because of how amazing we are. Father, we are made in your image and we have dignity and value because of that, but we are fundamentally flawed and broken because of our sin. And God, we're grateful that the only way we can have a relationship with you is by your body broken for our sin and your blood shed for our sin. So God, thank you for the cross. and Thank you that because of your free gift of grace, we can partake of the body and the blood shed for us, covers our sin. So God, be with us. I pray that the Holy Spirit would move as we examine ourselves. God, bring things to mind. Pray for boldness and courage for family members. Um, God, to pray and to lead their family through this moment. And Father, we thank you for what you've done. All glory and all honor and all praise is only reserved for you. Only belongs to you. God, we give you our lives, we give you our praise, and we give you our obedience. In Christ's name that we pray, amen.